Hello, and welcome to the Re-Re-Read podcast, where we learn the craft of writing from old-school authors. This week, we continue our studies with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Our topic is The Hound of the Baskervilles, Epistemology, or Dealing with the Dreaded Infodump. A mystery story needs to be mysterious, and yet if it's too mysterious, if there's no plausible movement toward solving the case, readers steeped in this genre will soon rebel. On the other hand, the case should also not be too easily crackable, or your reader and your brilliant detective will be not only bored but insulted. How do we strike that balance? How do we keep moving forward but on a winding path, creating and surmounting more interesting obstacles as we go? One way is to have your characters think they've figured something out, only to learn they were wrong. Watson is dispatched on a fact-finding mission to Baskerville Hall, minus Holmes, for the time being. There, Watson discovers that the telegram he and Holmes sent to Barrymore, the butler, in order to determine whether he was at home, was not actually delivered into his hands. This means the mysterious bearded stranger who was following Henry Baskerville in London could plausibly have been Barrymore, though Watson had previously thought they could rule that out. The world of Sherlock Holmes is one in which you can never quite be certain that you know what you know. This is why Dostoevsky loved detective stories. They're about epistemology. This whole approach to reading the book and the world it contains gets underscored many times as Watson begins poking around Baskerville Hall and the surrounding moors. First, in the middle of the night, he wakes to the sound of a woman wailing. In the morning, he and Baskerville ask Barrymore about it, who replies, There are only two women in the house, Sir Henry, he answered. One is the scullery maid who sleeps in the other wing. The other is my wife, and I can answer for it that the sound could not have come from her. However, Watson tells us, And yet he lied as he said it, for it chanced that after breakfast I met Mrs. Barrymore in the long corridor with a sun full upon her face. She was a large, impassive, heavy-featured woman with a stern, set expression of mouth but her tell-tale eyes were red and glanced at me from between swollen lids. It was she, then, who wept in the night, and if she did so, her husband must know it. Yet he had taken the obvious risk of discovery in declaring that it was not so. Why had he done this? And why did she weep so bitterly? Already round this pale-faced, handsome, black-bearded man there was gathering an atmosphere of mystery and of gloom. Then, walking back from his trip to the post office, where he discovers the slip-up with the telegram, Watson is accosted by a man introducing himself as Stapleton, who seems to know an amazing amount about the Baskerville case and Sherlock Holmes's involvement therein. Watson deflects Stapleton's questions about Holmes, to which Stapleton responds, "'You are perfectly right to be wary and discreet.' Still, Watson accepts Stapleton's invitation to lunch, as Holmes has tasked him with studying the neighbors upon the moor. But can Watson trust what Stapleton tells him? We don't know. Even the landscape participates in this duplicity, as Stapleton points out. You see, for example, this great plain to the north, here with the queer hills breaking out of it. Do you observe anything remarkable about that? It would be a rare place for a gallop, You would naturally think so, and the thought has cost several of their lives before now. You notice those bright green spots scattered thickly over it? Yes, they seem more fertile than the rest. Stapleton laughed. That is the great Grimpen Mire, said he. A false step yonder means death to man or beast. Only yesterday I saw one of the moor ponies wander into it. He never came out. I saw his head for quite a long time, craning out of the bog hole, but it sucked him down at last. Even in dry seasons it is a danger to cross it, but after these autumn rains it is an awful place. And yet I can find my way to the very heart of it and return alive. 
By George, there is another one of those miserable ponies. Sadly, Watson sees the truth of the mire with his own eyes, and let's not dwell on that any more than we have to. The point I wish to make here is that in Holmes' world, you must use your eyes and all your senses constantly and intensely. Your antennae are always up. At the same time, you must distrust the signals those antennae give you. You're caught in a constant tug-of-war between discovery and doubt, a sort of mire in itself in which Conan Doyle hopes to trap you, the reader. I'm interested in the ways mystery writers contend with the need to provide large amounts of information to the reader. What are the alternatives to having some witness magically appear and provide, in eye-glazing chunks of dialogue, key details that the reader and detective need to go forward? How else do you avoid mere, tedious exposition? Conan Doyle isn't averse to large chunks of expository dialogue, as is clear in this section, but so far, all this exposition is coming from people we have at least some reason not to trust, so we are never sure about the status of the information. Equally important, when we discover something we thought was true is in fact not true, we don't suspect bad faith on the author's part. We don't mind being tricked by the characters, but we must never feel that the author has done so. Conan Doyle achieves this feat by having Watson as his narrator. Watson works especially well in this role because he's a participant observer. He does a lot of the sleuthing himself, and he collects his observations meticulously, knowing Holmes will question him about everything. He also ventures some interpretations. Many of these interpretations will necessarily turn out to be wrong, but when they do, we don't feel tricked because we trust Watson. We know he's doing his best, so his mistakes are honest ones. He's not deliberately misleading us, even though the author can use Watson up to a point for that very purpose. Until the end of the story, we understand that what we're learning through Watson's viewpoint may be untrue, only partially true, or completely true, but not in the ways we might think. We're very much off balance and becoming more so, and that keeps us reading. <laughs>